Family Attractions, LLC. They take into calling the office itself haunted after a number of guests remarked on the odd smells that seemed to materialize out of nowhere. But this was likely due more to the place having very plainly been an olive garden 18 months earlier than anything spectral. An overpowering whiff of garlic bread sniffed as someone was closing up for the night, the last one left in the building. Everyone assumed Madame Devine was in on the joke when she would talk about having, quote, Savannah's most haunted kitchen. They didn't even serve food, after all, unless you counted the vending machine in the lobby. But one day she started putting it on all of the signage, in fresh-painted italicized little quotes along the bottom, and now staff opinion on the matter is split pretty well down the middle. What should we do if someone asks to see the kitchen? asked one tour guide. That's the first rule of showbiz, hon. Leave him wanting more. And then, following her own rule, Madame Devine retired to her office. Otis Wilson felt about his shortcut home from work the same way he felt about skydiving. Thrilling, but ultimately, a very stupid way to die. Yet here he was, cutting through the cemetery at one in the morning, and for what? To save five minutes? Doubtful, but could he really say either that it was because he wanted to die? He settled on, not consciously at least, and turns down a side path at the mausoleum with the stained glass window. Just for the thrill then, he supposed, though he found this far more embarrassing a prospect than a subconscious death drive and quickly buried it. The nearly full moon was just enough to set the colorful glass to glowing, and a small bundle of long dead pine boughs on the ledge beneath their perfume lost to time, sat as kindling waiting for some as yet unlit flame, cold and grim, waiting for the planets to align and an eon of moonlight focused through the holy magnifying glass to summon forth at last a pale smoke, a necrotic incense to call forth the slumbering residents on the eve of judgment. It'd be a little on the nose to die here, that was undeniable, but the idea held an element of romance that dying in a hospital bed simply couldn't match. He'd probably, he thought, end up as a story for whoever replaced him at work to tell. Narcissism, old buddy, old pal. Gaggles of Yankee tourists fanning themselves, sipping $15 cocktails from plastic cups and listening to some fool in steampunk goggles talk about how he'd been brutally mugged. Statistically, it seemed the most likely. But then why was he coming all the way out here and hopping the gate for something so pedestrian, something he could get anywhere? Nobody was paying $30 to hear a police blotter read aloud. You can get mugged just fine without leaving New York. Maybe death only becomes romantic on a long enough timeline to see the inconsequentiality of life, he thought. A twig snapped somewhere in the near distance, far from any streetlight. Otis stopped. Stopped walking, thinking, breathing. True crime starts to feel a lot less whimsical when it's happening to you. But it was only Lily, standing beneath an oak tree to his right. She stood back a little, as if even in the dark she could tell that he was a little confused by her presence and needed a moment. She wanted to take in his taking in of her, that first moment before his brain had the chance to rationalize. She apologized for scaring him and he lied and said he hadn't been scared. She closed the distance between them and kissed him, wrapped her arms around his neck, buried her head in his chest. It couldn't be fall break already, could it? I dropped out, she whispered into his sweatshirt. 
he'd known what she was going to say before she even said it, because it was the one thing she could have said that he did not want to hear, could not fit into the scheme of the world he'd carefully constructed for himself. He'd spent the better part of the last year denying that it was even a possibility. Ever since she'd come home for the winter holiday with only five of the 15 credits she'd set out to collect in her first semester, two of them were for a class called Welcome to College. I couldn't leave my mom alone again for another October. Stray strands of her hair clung against the breeze, amongst the tall, sun-crisp tufts of grass, shimmering like fresh silken spiderweb. She still hadn't put her shirt back on. He'd never taken his off. He could feel the dew already starting to seep through the blanket. Mario does all right for her, he said. He doesn't have a clue. She blew a thatch of hair off her face, chin jutted. He's a good guy. You guys nearly fell apart last year. Otis sat up, looked around. The crickets were louder than whatever traffic was left. Yeah, but that's how every October feels. She nearly sold everything and bought a beach house on Tybee. Did you know that? She told me that last night. She had a buyer lined up and everything. He hadn't known that. And, like, I don't blame her, you know? There's, like, so many fucking sick around here these days. Like, I was only gone for a few months, and even just the difference between August and now, I was shocked. Next week, the Tybee City Council would be attempting another vote on a previously proposed and shot-down measure to ban sick from the island. This time, it was expected to succeed. But, like, this shit is supposed to be mine, you know? My inheritance... The queasy truth of the matter was that Otis enjoyed scaring himself by walking home through the graveyard, and he did not enjoy scaring himself walking home through the tent cities, which had overtaken the sidewalks along his normal route, and seemed to be expanding outward every day. On the first of the month, an emergency bill had gone into effect across the state, which allowed property owners to evict anyone who tested positive for the disease, after a new study was released which suggested that the sick may shed germs which have the ability to embed themselves in carpet and curtain fibers, significantly diminishing property values. He'd expected Michaela to be asleep by the time he made it home, but upon turning onto their street, he saw that the light in the living room window was burning, even at this late hour, a beacon in the murk, warning passerby away from certain doom on rocky shores. I hate that you make me have to ask why you're gone so long. She fired her opening salvo before he even closed the front door behind him. A nearly empty bottle of wine on the coffee table in front of her. I could have literally died. Otis laughed and then immediately realized that he was not supposed to laugh. Don't you watch the news? There's literally a nurse killer on the loose. Two girls from my hospital have died in just the last month. What could he do now but apologize, tuck his tail, and explain something about drinks with friends after work, hold her, and hope for the best? She'd spent the past several hours stewing in the grievances which had moved in to fill the space left by Otis's absence, and she was determined to air them. But he remained steadfastly demure and apologetic, absorbed everything while offering no friction, returning nothing to her, and she soon ran out of energy and retreated wholly unsatisfied to bed to stew further. The police, quote, strongly suspected that the killer was someone with the disease. 
Otis went about brushing his teeth and making a bed for himself on the couch, turning off the lights and settling in under the blanket before he realized that he was not even a little bit tired. He found a police sketch depicting a man with half of his face rotted through. What if he was in the neighborhood right now? Otis stared up at the ceiling where the streetlight cast flickering shadows of the fan blades, thumping against the swampy night air. Why not this neighborhood, after all? It was close enough to the hospital. The odds were small, but not zero. And following that logic, there was a non-zero chance that he was in the backyard right now, which would naturally place him outside of the bedroom window. Surely all of the haunted souls across town lying helplessly awake were running similar calculations in their heads as well. These are the nights that he will remember, this half-faced nurse killer, for the rest of his days. Whether they end in an electric chair or a nursing home, his dying reverie will be that of an entire town in his thrall. Ten thousand doors deadbolted against him in mortal fear, his gruesome visage lurking in every shadow, every nightmare that school children dare to dream, scattered from bicycles and front lawns to early bedtimes, covers pulled tight to their chins. How many artists have spent their lives toiling in obscurity, even at the height of their craft? Not many who live are ever allowed to be truly great at something. Climbing through the window, Michaela's chest rising and falling in rhythm beneath the sheets, Wonder what sort of knife he favors. A shadow play projected on that moody living room ceiling. Does he loom over her or stand hunched in the corner? And for how long? Seeing if his concentrated will alone is powerful enough to awaken her. Waves of fear vibrating subsonically across space. Otis woke in the morning with the same crink in his neck that couch sleeping always gave him. Michaela was already back at work, a note on the fridge, reminding him to pay his rent, his girlfriend slash landlord. My parents gave me this house as an investment property, not a gift. Otis could never nail it down, whether Michaela's parents knew that within three months of moving in, she'd gone and shacked up with Savannah's premier ghost tour guide, and maybe some things were better left unnailed, after all. The day slipped away with practiced ease, melted into the background radiation of daytime television and reheated leftovers, and soon Otis was headed back to work. Three tours tonight, the busy season, though far less busy than busy seasons past. Everyone wants to be scared until there's something to actually be scared of. On the drive over, he resolved that if Madame Devine canceled another one of his tours, he was going to say something, maybe even threaten to quit if he was feeling bold in the moment. But what could she do? In fact, he was the only guide on her roster who she'd yet to turn away entirely after scheduling them for a shift. And, ultimately, he had no plan for how he'd respond if she laughed in his face, so he settled for positive thoughts and affirmations. Mostly jovial crowds that night, one guest on the late tour swore they saw someone standing in a second-story window at the Billings house. It was actually a Dale Earnhardt cardboard cutout, Optimal sometimes forgot to take it down when they were done. Some of the stodgier outfits are want to throw a fit when this happens. Remembering to take the damn thing down was a cornerstone of the agreement they'd made with all the major ghost tour companies in town in order that they'd be allowed to put it up in the first place without provoking a full-on war. They promised guests only an authentic experience, you see. But for Otis, it usually just meant better tips, so what did he care? 
At the end of the day, they were all just telling stories. Madame Devine had once attempted to form a sort of citywide inner tour company governing body with which she could sanction optimal, or whose name, at least, could adorn the letterhead for the strongly worded denunciations she'd penned. The whole thing fell apart when she realized that none of the other operators would allow her the sort of tyrannical control of the thing which she'd planned on giving herself and lost interest entirely. Otis had begun his tour guide career with Optimal, a fact which bothered Lily so deeply that it was the one thing she didn't tease him about. He met Michaela when she was on one of his tours at Optimum, where he only had to wear a black company polo. The paragraph in the company handbook on dress code made no mention of frock coats, top hats, goggles, bells, pocket watches, canes, homemade inventions, or ascots. The standard was clean-shaven, or a mustache, quote, like firefighters, the guy doing his training had said. Shirts tucked, ponytails for women. Lily knew about Michaela, too, and strongly preferred not talking about her, and so Otis had mercifully few opportunities upon which he felt a pang of obligation to investigate whether or not she knew about the Michaela optimum connection in the interest of something like putting all of his cards on the table, avoiding accusation of lying by omission, etc., etc., a connection which, while materially meaningless, he felt would cause a sort of irreparable rupture for Lily, mentally, a foundational betrayal that could not be overcome. This was simply a feeling, which he felt as a tremor somewhere shallow in his stomach. The cemetery gates, normally chained and locked dusk to dawn, are open when Otis arrives. It was a quarter past midnight. A new ordinance passed that summer forbade any tours from running later than twelve, and Otis, having already tossed his things into his backpack in anticipation of climbing the cemetery wall, felt the chill of a field mouse staring into the maw of something sinister, the mechanics of which escaped the register of his intellect, leaving only a near indiscernible thrum in the atmosphere between he and the open wrought iron mouth, but which was enough to etch upon his consciousness unmistakably. Trap. He ignores it and takes a shortcut, keeping his footsteps quiet as he leaves the comfort of the streetlights behind and descends, half expecting to hear the gates shut behind him. As he walks, his spiel begins to play in his head. This big open space we're passing on our right is actually a potter's field. They say if you walk across the grass at night on a new moon, you'll be able to hear the cries and moans of the people buried there. Pause for effect. Someone from security must have forgotten to lock the gates, though that almost never happened. It was one of their only jobs. There's a small and delicate light flickering in the window of a nearby mausoleum, Angel's trumpet a sputtering yellow point. Otis finds himself studying the window. Is it a light or a trick of the stained glass? When a voice lilts over the night. Help? Please? Somebody? He approaches, squat structure of heavy stone set atop a small rise, dense leafy growth in the midst of a hundred-year plan to reclaim not only the man, but his Masonic memory whole. Mounting the steps towards the entry, Otis can make out small markers, scattered snaggletooth along the ascent, memorials in miniature, half-digested by the cracked earth, one tossed asunder by primeval roots and shattered in three under the gravity of its neighbor, its etchings rendered moot by time, polished into an eldritch braille, which dissolved already cursory details into hand waves of the half-remembered. Born eighteen-something, probably? Hello? A girl in the mausoleum. 
silhouetted meekly by the light of an oil lantern, fingers wrapped in an oblique upward trajectory around slim rust-speckled bars. Please help. I locked myself in here. They keep all the backup keys with security in their office. If you just go there. He already knows I'm out here. Otis drew closer to the gate. She appeared to be in her early twenties and was wearing a long dress. He asked her where her key was. She said that she must have dropped it somewhere. She'd unlocked the gate and then realized that she'd forgotten her broom back near the entrance. Only when the wind blew the gate rattling shut behind her did she realize that she no longer had the key. She beckoned Otis closer. Can I tell you something? Otis nodded. Her breath was hot, fragrant, a nightingale calling hidden somewhere within the nearby magnolia. I don't want you to think I'm crazy. He wouldn't, couldn't even. I don't think it was the wind. I think that it was my uncle. He knows I'm out here. I think he did this. Otis felt that he should check his surroundings, see if he was being crept up on, but he could not take his eyes from the girl. Something about some business dispute with her father. He's hated my father for years, claims that he stole my mother from him too. My father is worried since I was born that he would take his revenge on me. I saw him leaving the cemetery around dusk, just as I was arriving. He said he was only delivering flowers, but he knows that my parents send me here to sweep in dust once a month, and what if he was waiting for me? I'm afraid of what will happen if he returns. Her hand snaked out between the bars and took Otis by his collar, feminine but firm, with an implication of strength behind it that alarmed him. She pulled him in, cold iron pressed against his cheek. What are you waiting for? She was whispering now. He could be here at any moment, and you're just standing there looking at me like I'm crazy. But I'm not crazy. You want me to tell you I'll fuck you if you bring me the key, is that it? Her voice was chalky, her perfume sour in his mouth. It made him kind of dizzy. She ran her nails down his cheek, sending goosebumps across the back of his neck. She pressed harder, digging in till it hurt. Pig! No longer whispering now, in her voice, he swore an octave deeper. Rotten bastard. He felt the wet hot tip of her tongue run up the crevice behind his ear, trembled, eyes rolling back in his head. A hot flash smashed into and through his brainstem like a semi through the last car in an exit ramp traffic jam. She pulled back into the belly of the sepulcher and left Otis floating in space, stumbling backward several steps, an unfamiliar breeze through his ear, and then the sensation of something dangling, of something only just hanging on. His hand clasped to the side of his head, her laughter still ringing in him as he staggers out the front gate, pitched forward at an untenable angle, a warm wetness seeping through his fingers. He found Michaela's sewing kit collecting dust and shut the bathroom door behind him, pulled up a YouTube tutorial, a couple swigs of whiskey, and then he cleaned his ear as best he could. Most of the blood by then had dried into an exoskeletal crust so that the water first ran clear into the sink and then bright red like Kool-Aid. The upper cartilage of his ear was torn, but still attached. Not as bad as he'd feared. He doused it in rubbing alcohol, bit down on the hand towel. If Michaela came down, he didn't have a story prepared for her. He laid a bath towel over his pillow and planned to sleep late so that he wouldn't cross paths with her in the morning before she left for work. He'd have the whole day to think up a plausible story. Sometime before he fell asleep, the throbbing in his ear stopped. From one moment to the next, though he was far too tired to pinpoint the moment, the pain simply dissipated, dissolved into the steaming night darkness, and the rhythm of Michaela's breathing in bed 
beside him. The towel was soaked when he awoke, parts of the pillowcase splotched as well. Everything in his injured ear sounded muffled, like he was on a plane. But Michaela was gone. She hadn't woken him to ask why there was Kelly green thread running through the cartilage of his ear. He threw the towel and pillowcase in the trash. There was a sort of charged emptiness in the kitchen, everything still. He left the bottle of whiskey on the counter. Maybe she'd assumed he was drunk, had a drinking accident. It was possible that it was too dark, she too tired and hurried to notice anything. It was also possible, he supposed, that she simply didn't care. He noticed, as he was cleaning up from breakfast, that the underwater sound in his ear had, at some point, faded. Until now, he could hear nothing at all. As we round the corner here, you'll see in front of you the Was the Moss Weber Mansion. Now, this story may sound familiar to anyone out there who is familiar with, uh, he really needed to quit drinking before work. Even he could no longer pretend it made him, quote, automatically better. Someone near the back of the throng chuckled, making the silence insurmountable. He cut his losses and moved on. Anyhow, uh, it would seem that Mr. Weber was a strict disciplinarian and, notoriously, a bit of a drunk. I'll leave it up to you whether the two were related. Okay, he still had them. He could feel as much. And Mr. Weber kept some chickens in the backyard of his house. The city wasn't quite so settled or civilized back then, you see. One day, it would seem, something else found the chickens and decided to make one into a snack. And when Mr. Weber finds the feathers in the morning, he's incensed. He tells his son, build a fence around the chickens. I want it finished by supper. He's angry, irrational. He doesn't expect the young boy to actually construct a fence, at least not in one day. But here the boy goes and does it. Working late into the night, Mr. Weber brings him food and light to work by. We will have fried chicken on your birthday, he tells him. The boy is satisfied. But after they've both gone to bed, the creature returns, digs its way under the chicken wire, and steals another chicken. The boy was devastated. Mr. Weber furious. He couldn't afford to keep losing chickens at this rate. Your birthday will be here soon, he told the boy and at this rate there will be no chickens left to fry. And so he ordered the boy to keep watch all that night and the following. He sets the boy up on the veranda with a rocking chair and his rifle. The first night passes without incident, although the boy spends much of the evening under the distinct impression that he is being watched. And the second night he falls asleep. His father shakes him awake come morning, the bottoms of the boy's stockings soaked, sunlight cutting through the lingering mist. Another chicken gone. At his wit's end, despondent at what he saw as his son's inability to fend for himself, Mr. Weber heads for the bar before even taking lunch. He doesn't come stumbling home until sometime after midnight, and what does he see by the light of the gas lanterns? But a cougar, slinking out of his backyard and into the marsh, another of the chickens draped between her jowls. Apparently struck by inspiration, he wakes up his son right then and there and tells him how it's going to be. He is going to take his father's rifle and march out into the marsh at dawn and not come back until he has killed the cougar. His father will have it stuffed and mounted on the wall, and on his birthday they will enjoy plump, juicy fried chicken as much as his stomach can handle. The door to his house, Mr. Weber tells his son, will be locked to him until the cougar is dead. So the boy packs his things and sets out at first light. 
All day he walks and walks and sees nothing. He shivers his way through a night on the ground and in the morning wakes to find cougar tracks circling round and round the soft mud around him. He manages to follow these until lunchtime when they come to a wide stretch of water. Here he loses the trail for good. The grass, swaying well above his head in the rushing breeze, is a constant menace. On the third day, well, nobody really knows what happened on the third day. Some folks think maybe the boy got accidentally tangled up in some deeper water and drowned. Some people think it was the cougar that got him. Either way, he was never seen again, and for three days following his disappearance, nothing was seen around town of the cougar. Then, on the boy's birthday, Mr. Weber awoke to find that not one, but three of his chickens had been carried off in the night. Grief-stricken, the man took a vow of sobriety right there on the spot, which he honored for the rest of his life. For as long as he lived, and he lived long, not another drop of alcohol passed his lips, and, for as long as he lived, he never lost another chicken. Michaela was drying her hair in the bathroom. Another girl murdered last night. Otis turned his head. He still couldn't hear out of his right ear. Another nurse from Mercy. He's practically doing them daily now. The black emptiness in the ear canal had begun to form into something, the shape of which was far beyond his comprehension. He knew only that what before had been an endless chasm now felt packed full, as if a shovel full of earth had been dumped inside and neatly tamped down. They think my gray aunt Sylvia has it, by the way. I'm really sorry, babe. That's horrible. He'd never heard of this aunt before, but if she was great, then Otis knew her already marginal chances of survival were all but zero. Yes, it is, isn't it? She's lived a long life, though. They say only one out of ten survived the disease, and survival really does seem to be the proper pejorative for it. Most victims who come out the other end still planted on this moral plane are only alive in the broadest medical sense, left wondering if maybe their nine comrades didn't get the better end of this deal. That is, of course, if they still have the capacity to wonder. Doctors say that the evidence is inconclusive. Which is why everyone's not sure what to make of this half-faced killer. Even if someone were to survive a run-in with the disease, the notion that they'd be able to get up and walk around of their own volition, let alone overpower able-bodied strangers, it went against everything people had been seeing. All of the rumors which had lingered long enough in the sticky swamp air that they'd become fact. And maybe they were. Lily didn't even notice Otis's ear when they were together, though he did flinch a little and nearly kicked her when she began kissing his neck. He couldn't recall the last time he'd seen her in the daylight, or even the recessed fluorescent lighting of her mother's office. My friend said he heard they started burying people even before they were officially dead. Otis always felt particularly drained after these meetings, even the brief ones. They basically know that they're going to die, I guess, but he said sometimes it's two or even three more hours before they actually do. He wondered if the multiple emphases on the friend as a he was intentional on Lily's part. His penchant for jealousy was destructive, he knew. It ate away at him steadily anywhere it crept in. But it was also the thing that kept Lily most acutely attracted to him. Theoretically, I guess they couldn't affect as many other people that way? That's ridiculous, Lily shrugged. Maybe it was better this way. She had a milky complexion, which seemed almost iridescent at night against the pillowed fondant moss, pungent earth, 
rising with her treacle perfume to wrap around his head till he was dizzy, floating weightless, fireflies dancing glowing at the edges of his vision, her diaphanous gossamer skin rising in pale goose pimples to meet the trembling tips of his fingers. Something about the moonlight highlighted every gradient in her hair when it hung down around his face like curtains, swaying like a spellbound snake with their every movement, containing the two of them in a world of hot, frantic breath and half-mumbled incantations. Lying tangled and shimmering in the midnight grass, she looked like Circe. In the daylight, she shrank and shriveled, never at ease under the sun, her mannerisms hurried and always nervous, uncertain, unnatural, skittish, flitting this way and that like a gnat. Depending on the day, it either made him hate her or pity her, want to take her away someplace dusky and safe, the back of a library, or perhaps the abandoned meat freezer beneath her mother's office. Her little brother Stephen was manning the reception desk when Otis walked in, a big vinyl banner draped across the front that Madame Devine had found at Goodwill. Follow us on Facebook, bordered by a string of little black lights. Lily was dragging her feet as far as creating the Facebook page, though even she had to admit that the banner was in pristine condition and an absolute steal for only $10. Somebody was at the bar, too, in salmon shorts with their back to the door. She blinded me with science humming along on the ceiling speakers. The door opened again. The man who walked in was there to meet the man at the bar, and their conversation shattered the tenuous pre-work stasis. The tour didn't start for half an hour, which meant Otis wasn't getting paid for another half an hour, and now he had to be on for the rest of the night, or at least not sitting in the corner half-conscious, enjoying the silence. Stephen didn't look up from his book. The newest arrival had his palms pressed into the top of the bar, squinting at the sign Madame Devine had taped to the back wall, amongst the costume store cobwebs in papyrus font. Coming soon. Wine, spirits, beer. In a slightly smaller font. As soon as the city council stops, all caps, playing politics and favorites with what is supposed to be an unbiased municipal process, we are excited to begin serving you before and after our world-famous ghost tours. If you would like to write a letter expressing your disgust with this lack of professionalism, it was a lot to fit on a standard sheet of printer paper. Another sheet below, a screenshot of a hearse someone was selling on eBay. Coming soon. I wonder if it's because they have a child working. I don't think 11-year-olds can serve alcohol. Both of the guys at the bar snickered. Is this the one where the lady who runs it is supposed to be a witch or whatever? She is, said Stephen. She does root magic. And we're the only tour company in town to have all of our stories certified authentic by the Savannah Society for Paranormal Research, a Madame Divine-owned LLC with a GeoCities website, on account of us having a witch who can commune with the dead. So all of our stories are ones you won't hear elsewhere, or if you do, we ask that you write down the name of the tour guide, what company it was, and the time and place at which the plagiarized story was related to you, and contact us at Family Attractions LLC, since our stories are proprietary content. Otis retreated back into the dining room to find a dark corner to sit in and wait until someone else showed up. The door to Madame Devine's office was closed, the light on. Kids loved him. The old folks found him charming. He could talk to couples and even flirt with the girls that came in, but with the frat boys, the bachelor parties, he struggled mightily to stay afloat. A small competing company, upstart at the time, defunct now, had once hired Stephen to play as a little imp, 
For $20, he followed one of their tours around, swiping at ankles between balustrades and rustling pertinent tree branches. Otis knew this. Lily and her mother did not. Stephen is generally very nice to Otis. Doesn't snitch on him when he slacks off or anything like that. Over the next 30 minutes, the audience trickled in. Otis brought himself to mingle. Five minutes after 8.30, he gathers everyone's attention. He gives the standard introduction. Only today, Stephen has handed him a last-minute amendment in the form of a degraded copy of a copy of a copy of a letter on Savannah P.D. letterhead, a sticky note on top, imploring Stephen to make sure that Otis read this aloud to the guests before the tour. The uh, police are advising that we should ask y'all to please stay within close contact of the people you came with throughout the duration of the tour, preferably no further than arm's length, and that parents exercise extreme diligence in keeping children within your eye line. People who did not arrive with anyone else are advised to utilize the buddy system. Do not venture off into prohibited or unknown locales. Was this a veiled shot at them? Lagging ticket sales had only earlier this month led Madame Devine to call every tour guide into her office for a meeting in which she instituted two new policies. One, the last tour of each night would be designated as a, quote, adult tour. The same tour. Only the tour guides are allowed to, nay, encouraged to swear. Otis was of the mind that if swearing was going to be mandatory, then it was incredibly embarrassing and uncool to swear. He couldn't bring himself to do it. He heard Lily really overdoing it one night and hasn't been able to look at her quite the same since. Rebranded after a week as Midnight Tours, when several guests filled out comment cards remarking that it sounded, quote, too pornographic. Only now cards were coming back saying that guests were confused because Madame Devine hadn't rescheduled the late tours, which still started at 10 p.m. and ended at 11. She only liked the sound of Midnight, quote, for the tone and the implications. She was staunch in her belief that a third name change in less than a month would spell a spiral of doom for the entire campaign. But a week ago, she watched the security feed. Initially installed in the hopes of capturing some ghost footage, it had by then become a nightly bedtime obsession. In horror, as a drunk and unsatisfied guest who'd shown up to the former Olive Garden an hour after they'd locked the doors, expecting a midnight tour at midnight, launched a brick through the dining room window. The second policy change was an overt order to tour guides to, quote, look the other way when guests trespassed on the porches and into the backyards of the houses they visited. Otis had once witnessed Lily, still green, break down in exhausted, exasperated tears after failing to pry a peering guest away from the dining room window of the Moss House, terrified that her mother was going to be fined or even sued. The police strongly advise all guests to return home immediately following the conclusion of your tour and to avoid lingering. Otis folded up the letter and put it in his pocket. He had just said, as far as he could tell, the creepiest thing that he was going to say all night, and he felt the oxygen drain from the room. True crime starts to feel a lot less whimsical when it's happening to you. Michaela had asked Otis not to work that night, even going so far as to say she didn't care whether he made his half of the rent that month. She wanted him to walk her home from the hospital, but it was nearly Halloween, and there was nobody to cover for him even if he wanted to take off. And so, out the door he went, leading his troop into the electric night, beset, for all they knew, on all sides. Stephen locked the door behind them. Later on, it will rain. You can smell it on the air. But for the time, it's all humidity. 
Ogus dabbing his forehead, a dozen footsteps out of rhythm on the cobblestones behind. After only a few blocks, the lively cacophony of the entertainment district bleeds away into penetrating cricket-inflected stillness. The meager gas-lamp streetlights swallowed somewhere in the gnarled, outstretched arms of the oaks, the gauzy moss. 429 Bull Street, the Mercer House, and the books. Night off to a good start, and a full, bright moon rising yellow between streaks of cloud. On to the next stop. Otis pops open his water bottle and takes a sip, cringes, sucking air through his teeth, takes another while he's still far enough ahead of the group that nobody will smell the reeking vodka, then swishes it around a bit and finds it almost empty. A low-level burst of panic in his stomach. He may be a little out over his skis here. Briefly takes a wrong turn onto Jefferson Street before he remembers the new route, remembers that Jefferson has become overrun with tents and the gasping, moaning, shambling sick. Then it's into the cemetery. An initial buzz of excitement works through the party before the deepest silence of the night so far settles over all. A pirate's grave, a former mayor, a pair of authors, an heiress, a hundred more Confederate boys in neat rank and file, ready to pop back up into formation at a moment's notice. Would they do it again, if they could? Dust off their weapons and muster up once more whatever that thing is inside of men which allows them to look death in the eye, fragrance of their mother's swaddling blanket still lingering in their nostrils as fond memory, only sixteen or seventeen many of them, and wade into a river of grass and musket fire and viscera of their friends who are laughing with them only an hour prior, cannonballs chewing through legs like a mower to throw their bodies upon row after row of glinting bayonets already so familiar with what the inside of a human body looks like on the outside and ready still to skewer themselves, gentle loop of still pulsing intestine gleaming wet in the midday sun. Would they again hurl themselves headlong into these yawning graves, or would they turn, turn and run, across the field and through the camp, through forest and over mountain, run day and night till they reached home in their mother's arms, and vowed never again to touch musket or cannon, to live the rest of their lives with the pungence of gun smoke in their nostrils, the earth and silence of the grave still ringing in their ears. Let nobody say that Otis was not a performer when he wanted to be, a roll of thunder rising in the distance. It's estimated that over 500 slaves are buried in the unmarked field to our left. Further down, the city buried nearly a thousand tuberculosis victims. The outbreak was so bad that they constructed an underground tunnel from here to the hospital. Only a short walk to the last stop of the night, the Mason Weber mansion. The moss swings low, swaying just so with each merciful breath of wind. The primordial moss, which bears the city's secrets within her spectral embrace, has borne witness to every dark invocation uttered in back alleys, every foul deed committed behind the oaken doors and suffocating velvet drapes of these mute mansions. If you listen closely, after midnight, she will whisper in your ear. A flash of heat lightning on the horizon, followed a few seconds later by more thunder. They arrive at the mansion. Something feels immediately off but Otis is still lucid enough to assume that it probably has something to do with the empty water bottle he can't seem to stop turning over in his hands. If he can just get through this without puking, he'll be in the clear. Back when Jameson Webster first built his house on this property, Savannah looked a lot different than it does today. Was that a sound in the hedgerow to his left? Nobody else seemed to notice. And still, his chickens just kept disappearing. There it is again. Surely someone else heard the rustling this time. But they're eating out of his hands. Even a close clap of thunder isn't enough to stir their attention. 
Three days passed, and still his son did not return. He would never see him again. Out of the corner of his eye, Otis sees something emerge from the greenery. A woman near the back of the group screams. A small boy with gashes painted across his face, pantyhose intestines held against his stomach, flopping around like dead fish in the sodium vapor streetlight. Otis recognizes Stephen immediately. The guest nearest the hedgerow, a towering bald guy with arms popping out of the sleeves of his black t-shirt, takes one step and absolutely fucking clocks Stephen right in the chin. Otis watched as if it were happening in slow motion. He swears he saw the boy's feet momentarily leave solid ground. And then from one moment to the next, Stephen is just sitting there on his ass, too stunned to even cry, or perhaps too concussed. The bald man is down next to him on one knee already. Oh my god, I'm so sorry, you really scared me, etc., etc. Everyone else gathers around the pair, and Otis is the only one who notices the door to the mansion swing open, the light spilling out onto the lawn. Madame Devine is already halfway to them by the time Otis turns to look, skirt hiked up in both hands, and he catches her before she can fall on the bald man, claws first. As he's restraining her, one of the other guests turns and says, Holy shit, is that a cougar? It is. Strutting lithely down the sidewalk towards the guest until a wiry, shirtless man in a safari vest appears in the doorway with wide, bloodshot eyes to coax it back inside with a giant slab of steak. You left the door open, he shouts. You let it off the fucking leash, she shouts back. A brief screaming match ensues as the guests murmur amongst themselves, trying to figure out if they are witnessing part of the tour or something else. The sky opens up and it begins to rain, coming in wave upon wave, rushing down the street, clouds of mist swirling off of the pavement, and within moments they are all soaked to the bone. The cemetery gates were locked by the time Otis arrived on his walk home, so with a quick glance over each shoulder he tossed his backpack over the wall before hoisting himself up and over and into a pile of wet dead leaves. The rain had tapered into a low steady drizzle, barely more than a fine mist washing over his face as he walked. He arrived at a not unpleasant state of half sobriety. The inside of his mind seemed expansive and spacious, all-encompassing, the outside world distant and detached. Lily had already heard about what had happened and wanted to meet him in the graveyard to discuss. Michaela's shift ended at ten. He thought about calling her. She was probably asleep, or still bitter that he hadn't been there to walk her home. He crosses a small stone bridge covered in a thin sheet of mist to the meeting spot. The small creek below, normally not much more than an excuse to have built the bridge, babbled noisily underfoot before dipping back underground some fifty yards farther down. He spotted Lily marching toward him along a row of white cross markers. He had never seen her so flustered before. I just... need to know. She caught her breath and composed herself, trying not to appear flustered. If you had any involvement in this, how much did you know? Despite how often he did it, Otis didn't consider himself a particularly skilled liar, and was thankful here that he wouldn't have to. Oh, like, nothing. Nothing? Literally nothing. I was as surprised as anyone there. She stared at him, reassessing her whole strategy. She'd come here to holler and found herself with nobody to holler at. She was clearly in the midst of a project to reassess all of her familiar footholds after what must have felt like the earth crumbling beneath her, and Otis's passing sense of relief at not being hollered at 
was soon replaced by a vaguely sick feeling which settled in his stomach like silt at the bottom of a pond, as they both realized at about the same time that he was possibly one of the only people in the world that she could trust right now. She was supposed to inherit the company. He knew that, right? It was her birthright. How many snarky comments had she endured in school hallways? How many weekends had she forsaken with friends, potential friends, potential boyfriends, in order to help out with this godforsaken company? And now her mom and brother were going to tarnish all of it with this low-rent huckster bullshit? You spend years building a reputation, and for what? They had no principles. They had nothing. They weren't optimum. They didn't get every tourist who spent two minutes Googling for a ghost tour that clicked on the first result. Did she even consult me on this? No, of course she didn't. She'd have to actually think of me as an adult. She'd have to actually value my opinion on anything to do that. Otis pointed out, in an attempt to be helpful, that none of the guests had seemed particularly upset. She sighed and paced the small footbridge once, twice. I shouldn't. Otis hated it when she did this. You can't tell anyone. I mean it. You have to promise. Otis promised. Lily sighed again and covered her face with both hands, rubbing in big circles around her eyes. You know the nurse killer, yeah? The half-faced guy or whatever? Her voice muffled against her palms. You have to swear you won't tell anyone. He wouldn't. I, th I think... I think my mom might be involved. Somehow. What? Somehow? What did that even mean? I don't know. I don't... I don't know. I don't have any proof. I just... I know she's been extra pissed at the city lately. They're trying to charge us $50 more for the operating license than last year. And she's been spending a lot of time alone in her office with the door locked. A lot of time in her garden late at night. I tried to follow her out one night on one of her walks. Before she caught me, it seemed like she was going towards the hospital. I think she might be using her root magic to... Otis usually bit his tongue and waited for the subject to change whenever Lily brought up the root magic. She fancied herself something of a witch as well, though the interest only seemed to crop up intensely every few months before fading away, comparable to his interest in medieval history or Steely Dan. I don't know, I guess to, like, keep someone alive who had the disease and sort of sick them on people? Can she really do that? She glared at him. She thinks that she can. And those folks would probably be pretty pissed off at the rest of the world already, don't you think? She wouldn't have to do much persuading, I mean. So you haven't told anyone? She shook her head. How long were you going to let it go on? She shrugged, sniffled. It was too dark to tell, but she must have been crying. He felt a twinge in his heart, wanted to ease up. But instead he was raising his voice. Well... He harbored no illusions that her mother was actually capable of such a thing, though he had no doubt that she would want to if she could. But he was still drunk enough to feel like fighting. And if it was true, if Lily actually thought this was happening, then why hadn't she stopped it? You're going to be mad at me. What? Why? He began to put the pieces together in the moment before they left her mouth. She pulled her sweatshirt up over her face. I don't know... They kept killing nurses, and I just thought... She trailed off. Otis said nothing. He was going to make her say it. I thought... I don't know what I thought. Her voice dropped so low as to barely be audible, even in the midnight silence of the graveyard. I just thought... 
Maybe he'd do Michaela or something. Otis said nothing. You always complain about her. You can't be mad at me. You don't even like her. Silence. When she pulled her head out of her sweater, he was gone. He'd walked for several minutes with his head down, weaving through her headstones, no idea where he was headed, and found himself in a section he'd never been before, standing in front of a spindly or naked gazebo behind a mausoleum, flowering datura vines intertwined through the latticework and a dainty little table and chair set beside. A tea set atop the table, a still-burning cigarette resting in one of the teacups, thin trail of smoke winding its way toward the stars. A finely dressed woman approached, as if conjured from the hedgerows, and sat at the table. Otis didn't know if he'd prefer she were human or spirit. She looked at him, her eyes brown and deep, the girl from the tomb. She beckoned to him, his ear throbbed, blood rushing past. But he cannot help it, and as if he were floating towards her. Lily's voice in the near distance, it barely registers, and Otis ignores it anyways. She sounds as if she is a mile underwater, or in another reality entirely. And then the girl from the gazebo is gone, from one moment to the next, and Lily is approaching imminently. She's found him. The pair walk in mutual silence back toward the entrance, though they have a long way to go from here, and in the dark they take a wrong turn, barely know where they are to begin with, and soon find the cemetery growing only deeper, only darker, all around them, until they're walking down a warped and cragged side path through a tightly woven thicket of trees, all starlight blotted out and darkness ahead, so thick that each step necessitates a minor leap of faith that their feet will land somewhere viable. The dead leaves too soaked to crunch, the whole world so damp that even the bricks beneath have gone soft underfoot. The ground itself begins to feel unstable. Otis almost twists his ankle. They both stop walking then, would stop breathing if they could. They've nearly emerged on the edge of the huge potter's field. They can see the horizon open up ahead. They've each been past here a thousand times, told the story so many times that the words have lost all meaning, but is each of them now hearing what the other is hearing? A sustained and low gust of wind blows a smattering of leaves from their path, and beneath that, a low, low moaning right beneath their shoes, as if emanating from the earth itself. Unmistakable. Dozens and dozens of delirious vocal cords thrumming and groaning in agony all around them. They fly from the scene, the pair of them, before either has time to think, feet barely grazing the ground, weaving slalom-like through clusters of headstones, hardly even slowing to vault over the perimeter wall, not stopping to say goodbye. Lily simply splits from her home when they pass her street. Otis doesn't stop moving until his vision starts to get kind of soft and floaty at the edges. Hands on his knees, sucking air on some deserted downtown street corner. He can hear nothing but his own breath and the sound of his heart pounding disconcertingly hard against the walls of his chest. Darkened shop windows watching in mute judgment. The rain has stopped, or he has simply outrun it. He eventually hoists himself upright and begins to walk in the direction of home. The humped cobblestone streets sang with steam. They may have been empty, but here at least they are well lit, and there is enough to begin already the process of nudging Otis back to the real world. For now it would be enough simply to make it home, lay down in bed, 
hear Michaela breathing next to him. Tomorrow his mind can begin to rationalize, to step aside and allow memory to come in and smooth the edges, smudge the details, the feeling, to corral that moment of primal terror back into the bounds of the comprehensible every day, shave away until it was honed into a repeatable anecdote. Otis stops. His mind snaps immediately back to the present. He is no longer alone. There was a restaurant across the street, patio awash in cold floodlight from somewhere near the alley roofline. There was a man standing atop one of the tables, completely still. The hospital gown he was wearing fluttered a bit, cut just above his knees, a flighty contrast to the rigid pose. Surely he had noticed Otis, though he gave no indication. He held his arms out at his side, turned downward at the elbow at a convex angle, palms facing backward with fingers extended, locked tightly together. Surely he had noticed Otis, though he gave no indication. The man's face was obscured by harsh shadows, but even from where he stood, Otis could tell that something was severely wrong with the far side of the visage. Too dark to make out any detail. Simply too dark. An absence so profound as to be a presence. For a long, long, long time, Otis didn't move couldn't take his eyes off the man. He waits for a passing car to break the stalemate, a gaggle of drunks stumbling home from the bar, anything. Even a strong gust of wind would be something, but the air seemed somehow particularly deadened. More than still, as if every particle were being held forcibly in place, prevented desperately moment to moment even from vibrating. The tension could turn only inward, building moment to moment. Otis is stranded in time and space with the man across the street. Eventually, Otis made the first move. One step at a time, slow creeping progress down the street. If the man noticed, he made no sign. Otis did not once take his eyes from the man as he made his way, till he turned the corner around the building, and then he waited, listened for any sound of the man moving, following. But he heard none. He spent the rest of the walk home glancing back over his shoulder. Upon arriving, Otis made sure all of the doors were locked. Then he checked the windows. Finally, with a small nervous lump in his throat, he opened the bedroom door. To his relief, Michaela's chest was steadily rising and falling beneath the comforter. He pulled a chair in front of the window and sat down, looking out on the moon-washed street, waiting to feel sleepy. For a long time, nothing happens. Then, just as he can feel fatigue begin to catch up to his adrenaline-addled brain, he catches out of the corner of his eye a long shadow laid across the street at the end of the block. The corporeal figure stops midway across the street, and Otis knows in the core of his being that it is too far away to know anything for certain that it is the man from the picnic table. He also, and maybe this is simply his ego running away with itself again, knows without any doubt that the man is looking directly at him. Somehow, just before dawn, Otis manages to fall asleep. Michaela's already up and out of bed by the time he wakes. The smell of coffee, the sound of the morning news humming away downstairs. He finds her cross-legged on the couch. She's been crying. She looks up at him when he enters, still squinty-eyed and groggy, sniffles. Have you seen this? Motioning towards the TV. There's police caution tape and a field of black body bags, row upon row, stacked two or three high in most places. They are at the cemetery. 
Michaela blows her nose. Last night seemed so far away here in the familiar morning sunlight now breaking through the living room bay window. They've been tossing these people out there, alive. They don't even wait for them to die in the hospital. One of the victims, intoned the reporter, Mr. Robert Sanchez, was left out here nearly three weeks ago. A man in a wheelchair, his face covered in scabs, his lawyer standing next to him, speaks on his behalf. The body bags which the hospitals have been using are the cheapest you can buy, made with low quality and often repurposed material, and so any rain and the dew each morning would eventually permeate the membrane and collect on the inner lining of the bag, at which point my client, Mr. Sanchez, and the other victims who suffered alongside him were able to suck up just enough moisture to keep them alive, often for weeks. The hospital has yet to comment. Otis sat down, put his arm around Michaela. The local news turned over to Good Morning America, and then a commercial. They sat like that, in silence, until the end of the first commercial break, and then one of them stood up, cleared their throat, and asked the other what they ought to do for breakfast. 